Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about Celtic theology. I have said in these podcasts that I um, am a person who believes and leans to and am influenced by Celtic theology. We've had a lot of people write in and call and say, what the heck is Celtic theology? Well, I'm delighted to take a moment to, uh, to talk about that, particularly here at the beginning of the summer. Um, Celtic theology is a, a certain kind of Christian theology that comes out of er- earlier Christian history. Um, it takes a little bit of history to understand. It's not going to take a lot. Um, and then it leaves us with some distinctives that are very much what have influenced me and influenced a great many people, uh, I think, today. And it's, I, I think there's a, a, a neo-Celtic movement happening that, you know, it's probably as much about Braveheart and the movie Rob Roy as it is about uh, theology. But still, it's, uh, it's, it's fun to see. I'm glad to see it. And I think it's having a tremendous influence on our time. So both because it influences me and you're listening to this podcast and also because it's a movement in our times. Let me talk about it a little bit. Um, all of us know, of course, Christianity born, birthed uh, with the birth of Jesus around 4 BC and, and then grew through the Christian church as it made its way uh, into the Celtic lands. About that time, of course, it was allied, it was connected to Rome. I think most of you listening know that, you know, Rome persecuted the Christian church till about 313 AD. Uh, and then in the Edict of Milan under Constantine, um, Rome legalized Christianity. Not too long afterwards, it made Christianity the only legal religion in the Roman Empire. But after, so that means essentially that you began to have Rome and Christianity somewhat the same thing. Now, it was a state kind of Christianity, and it wasn't pure, and, and there's, there's much to be said about that. But that's not really our point today. So as, as Christianity then moved into the British Isles, moved up into uh, Britain, you know, moved into the land of Wales, and, and permeated Ireland. By the way, Ireland, the land that's now called Ireland, was never really part of the Roman Empire. Um, obviously, churches were planted. Uh, obviously, bishops were in place. Obviously, the gospel was preached, etc., and the tribes were converted. What happened was around 407 A.D., the Roman Empire receded, so to speak. It was fighting Visigoths at home in Italy. Uh, it began to pull back from its far reaches, and so it abandoned uh, the British Isles. It abandoned Ireland. It Im- abandoned the Celtic lands. And for a number of centuries, you had a kind of Christianity arise that was distinct from Roman Christianity. Uh, now, this is before the birth of the Eastern Orthodox Church, before, of course, the Protestant movement of the Reformation. It's before other kinds of movements. And it was distinct in some pretty important ways, let me quickly say, and I won't get too complex with this, that Roman Christianity, what we now might call Roman Catholic, but at that time, I'm speaking just of Roman Christianity, absorbed a great deal of Platonism. Now, I'm not going to get all academic here, but Plato taught basically that there's the natural world and there's this other world of thought and ideas, which some had been interpreted as the spiritual world. So basically, there's a dualism. There's two things happening. There's the earthly and there's the spiritual. And the spiritual is removed from the earthly and the earthly is removed from the spiritual or the, or the invisible, the new the mental, um, this, this other realm. And so that dichotomy, that platonic dualism, as scholars call it, 
uh, really infiltrated Roman spirituality. And you can see this in the history of the Catholic Church. I mean, you know, you've seen movies or you've read books about people who, you know, were kicked out of the church and so they weren't going to be buried in, in, uh, in sacred ground, holy ground. And literally that holy ground was maybe a churchyard that was defined by a fence. If you stepped outside the fence, you were out in the world. And if you stepped over the fence or went through the gate and went into the interior, now you're on holy ground. I mean, that's how much distinction and division there was. There was the sacred, there was the profane, there was the holy, there was the unholy. You lived in that, those terms. And spirituality was always otherworldly. It was non-physical. You were even taught sort of to despise your body and despise the natural things of this life. And the only things, the only people living true, pure, holy callings were priests and nuns. And that's because they were celibate and they were living in communities remote from the world. All of that beset Roman Christianity. The Celts came from a different perspective. Now, when I say the Celts, I don't mean a specific church organization. I simply mean the kind of spirituality that began to emerge over these centuries. The Celts had been raised essentially or influenced in their pagan days by the Druids. And the Druids saw the natural world as sort of the gateway to the spiritual world. So springs and groves and things of that nature were places where you could contact the spiritual. But the earthly and the spiritual were intertwined. Now, these were pagan ideas at the time, but then along came Christianity. And the Celts took the attitude that we all ought to take. They got rid of everything in their theology that was counter to Scripture. But then they said, hey, you know, there are some things here we want to hang on to because they're biblical. Uh, and this began to create a different kind of spirituality. The Celts were earthy, poetic, warrior-like. You hear the phrase uh, poet warriors in the movie Braveheart. That's very much a Celtic definition. They were about the arts. They were, they were a, a very um, august, robust kind of people. And when they became Christians, they became august, robust Christians. And their theology became something that was unique. And the way they went about ministry and the way they went about living out the Christian faith, very unique. And I think an antidote to much that's happening in our times. So, so basically, from about 407 AD, you begin to have the Roman Empire receding from the Celtic lands. You have a church. Again, I'm not speaking of a structure. I'm just speaking of Christians as a whole growing differently from the Roman kind of Christianity uh, up there in the Celtic lands. And this continues for two or three centuries until something called the Synod of Whitby. That's all the church history I'm going to teach. Now, what was it about the Celts that makes them so unique? Well, probably the best way to express this might be to talk about St. Patrick, because St. Patrick was one of the first Celtic leaders. He was actually British, but he was called to the lands we now call Ireland, and he, he did have a massive impact on Ireland. Some of the things about him are myths, like that he drove all the snakes out of Ireland and all that kind of thing. And he may have used a three-leaf clover as a symbol of the Trinity, but who knows? And frankly, who cares? That's not the important stuff. What's important about Patrick is that the way he went about winning Celtic tribes, Irish tribes, uh, to, to Jesus. Uh, the Irish tribes were wild and pagan and lived in various valleys and dales and hills and along the contours of the land. And Patrick would go in and he would take into these tribes a Christian community. Here's how it would work. He'd go in, he'd build relationship, build friendship with the chief, the chieftain. 
Uh, he did this a number of ways. He did this because he was engaging. He did this. He had his own uh, brewmaster. He had fantastic beer. He had a reputation for uh, producing a fantastic kind of beer, which he shared freely with his uh, these Irish tribes. He built relationship with them. And in time, he would say, may we build a Christian community over here right on the edge of your um, your tribe. The chieftain would love to have them around, would say yes. So uh, Patrick would build then a community that was not a monastic community in the sense that it went out in the desert and it was removed from the world. He would build a Christian community that was inside the world, uh, that was right there having influence upon it. He'd build a, a beautiful village, Christian village essentially. He wouldn't just have monks and nuns. He'd have families um, each one was going about his holy calling. There was a brick mason and there was a stone mason and there was the cook and there was the farmer and there was the school teacher and all the different skills. Um, they would uh, build their community to the glory of God. Worship would be at the center of it. They would brew their beer and bake their bread and do all things to the glory of God, do it well. Before long, these, these rather dirty, and I don't, that's not being insulting to the Irish, they, they, their own history say, man, these people were physically dirty back in the day. Um, they would begin to notice these Christians. They'd begin to come down. The Christians would say, come down for our Easter celebration. Come down for our, our feast. Come down for our Christmas feast. And the pagan tribes would start to come in and, and drink their beer and eat their bread and watch these beautiful worship services and see how strong the kids were and how strong the marriages were and how lovely the homes were. And you basically had a little dose of the kingdom of God uh, sort of permeating, infiltrating, working like leaven in these tribes. And that is the way that Patrick led these tribes to Jesus. He wasn't doing the Billy Graham thing of the big open-air meeting. Uh, he was living out Christian community. There were signs and wonders. If the chieftain's daughter got got sick, he, he, they'd go and pray for them, and many times the people would, who were ill would recover. Uh, it was an amazing work of of ministry unlike anything else. Now, the Roman Empire would have preached. The Celtic approach was to build relationship and invite people into a whole experience, a, a holistic experience, meaning we're a community, we're life on earth, we're living out the Christ life on earth. It's about bread and it's about beer, but yeah, it's also about fasting and it's about prayer. But yeah, it's also about sex and about marriage and about children and about happiness in the home. And uh, and then also it's about spirituality and liturgy, liturgy and worship on Sundays. But then on the other hand, it's about, you know, books and games and fun and feasts. You see what they were doing. They were incarnating the gospel in real life. Well, it led to a kind of Christianity that was biblical, certainly. They were rooted in scripture. It was also, in, in, to use the modern term, charismatic, in the sense that they believed in signs and wonders, and they believed in God speaking, and they had power encounters. But, but then they also lived in holy community. They, they lived together, and their lives together, their, their relationships, their connections uh, were ways that God impacted people. Um, they loved nature. They understood that God had created all things, and as Romans 1 says, all things revealed him. And so they didn't live in tension with their bodies or in tension with nature, uh, in tension with the beauty of the land, uh, thinking somehow that to be to love the land or to, or to take too much good care of their body was somehow sinful. No, they believed it was all done to the glory of God and that Christ had taken on a human body to sanctify all of that experience. And so that was, that was a beautiful part of who they were. And it also affected 
um, the way that they did worship. They certainly worshiped on Sunday mornings like all Christians did, but they understood that every day was something done in worship, the changing of a diaper, the frying of an egg, uh, the pouring of a glass of something to drink, the uh, tilling of the field, and they had songs for all of it. In fact, the Celtic approach to poetry and song uh, was to celebrate the moment. They'd have songs for drinking beer and songs for plowing the field. And uh, there was a bathing song that they used when they come in from the fields. And believe it or not, they were actually, I mean, I'm making up a term here, but this is what it was, a sex song. In other words, a song that a wife would sing to her husband, a husband would sing to his wife to sort of woo them to bed. Um, songs, worship, poetry, it was all meant to sanctify the human experience on earth done to the glory of God. And there were other dynamics too. They were very much about adventure and living out the what they called the wild goose life. And women had more prominence than they did in the Roman church and all of that kind of thing. So it was a different kind of spirituality that was lived out in this life, uh, very much in Christian terms, but very much incarnated in the real world. I'll tell you where I see Celtic theology really being lived out. It's by the 20-somethings. Um, the 20-somethings in our generation who are Christians um, very much understand the value of relationships, very much understand um, the value of living in this world but not being of it, very much understand the idea of doing good in the society, and love to go raise a glass of beer, Guinness, whatever, to the glory of God, and, and uh, enjoy their relationships, and then live out the gospel in practical ways. That's Celtic theology. So for those of you who have asked, in Nashville, I attend a charismatic Anglican church, Church of the Redeemer, uh, which is very Celtic. And in D.C., uh, Washington, D.C., where we also live, uh, I attend about a 3,000-member, largely African-American church where I'm actually uh, adjunct staff. And um, I love both those experiences, and both of them are rooted in Celtic theology because, believe it or not, though African-Americans, Lord knows, aren't Irish, they're living out a great deal of Celtic theology. So that's what it is. That's how it's influenced us. And a lot of what it drives off is kind of an empty dualism. Spirituality is something other. You have to deny your your life in this world and your physical existence to somehow be spiritual. It's unbiblical. uh, It's unwise. It's impossible to do. And it creates tensions, I think, that distract from the true essence of the Christian life. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker, a frequent faith and culture commentator on Fox Cable News and CNN, and a blogger for the Huffington Post. His groundbreaking books on faith and American politics include The Faith of George W. Bush, The Faith of Barack Obama, and the upcoming The Mormonization of America. You can learn more about Stephen at www.mansfieldgroup.com or connect with him on Facebook and on Twitter under the name Mansfield Writes. The Stephen Mansfield Podcast is produced by Isaac Darnell for Chartwell Literary Group. (laughs) 